Hello everyone and welcome to episode number 35 and we are actually recording this episode on Sunday, uh, September 20th and uh, we really are going to try to wrap things up in 30 minutes uh, or thereabout. So um, uh, I am uh, Kerwin and I'm here with my buddy. For sure. And this is the next episode of What's Happening in Travel. And so... Um, this one is going to be all about aircraft and, uh, and airports. The episode before was all about airlines, and it was too long. Um, so uh, let's talk about um, freighters, because freighters is a big thing now. Um, I mean, they've always been a big thing, but nobody really cared. But now it's a much, much bigger thing because they can't really carry passengers as much as you wanted to. Uh, so tell us, Gosha, what's going on in the freighter world? So this was an article that I read in um, this daily email called the MRO Digest. Mm -hmm. And it had to do with uh, the A321 P2F, as they're calling, passenger to freighter. Because to the best of my knowledge, Airbus really does not make a dedicated freighter of the 321, or in fact, any of its aircraft except the 330. So um, there's this company in Singapore which has long been an aerospace engineering firm called ST Aerospace that is exclusively working on Airbus planes. Hmm. Uh, They have the capability to work on the the 737, but uh, they prefer the Airbus frame because it can directly accept the uh, LD3 containers that are the standard uh, equipment on um, freighter aircraft all around the world. Whereas the Boeing 737 is a much older airframe, so it doesn't really have the width and the height to Ah, support the width of the container. So um, I really wasn't, I'd heard about Qantas getting, um, being the first operator of the um, A321 for Australia Post, but I didn't realize that it was such an established program. Well, they're apparently doing very well, and they've announced a 2021 expansion of their facilities in Guangzhou in China, and also um, in San Antonio in Texas in the U.S. Yeah. Um, of course, they have this their main office in uh, Singapore, and it's an airport called Seletar, and it's the code is XSP uh, in Singapore. Um, they have two lines capable of converting six to eight aircraft annually in Singapore, but they plan to double and triple that once their um, Chinese and U.S. Um, operations come online. They've also got a partner, uh, a German partner actually, um, called Elbe Flugzugwerk. Again, I hope I'm. Uh, the German is quite good, Kusha. <laughs> um, and it's, it's actually a joint venture, venture partner with ST and Airbus. Uh, and they predominantly convert the 330s. Okay. But ST is primarily uh, working with 320s and mostly 321s. Um, they... They currently work, they've, they're sold out, by the way, 2021. Um, wow. And they're currently working on two ex-Thomas Cook 
P21s that are 20 years old and they're working on them for uh, Titan Airways, which is uh, a UK airline. Wow. But um, I just thought it was interesting to mention that the 321 is directly a competitor of the Boeing 757, which is a pretty popular freighter, actually, yeah. because FedEx has several in its fleet and so do other carriers around the world. So um, I think that this would be, um, I mean, this, I mean, there are lots of A321s coming online with all the fleet um, resizings that are going on. So yeah, I just thought um, this was an interesting topic to bring up. You know, it, it's not so, bad because, um, Boeing has pretty much dominated the freighter. Um, yep, absolutely. Industry, right? So it's, it's good, I guess, to see Air, Airbus bringing them. And obviously there's need for it because if they're sold out to 2021, you said, right? But remember, this is just like eight to 10, maybe 15 frames a year. Yeah, still. Still, that's still, yeah. Yeah. And they're about this, the airplanes are about the same size. So uh, yes, yeah, it, may, it makes sense. All right. Well, that's good to hear. But, um, uh, did you have anything else on that one? No. Uh -uh. Okay. So uh, interesting stuff yeah, going on with the freighters there. So our next topic is um, we're going to talk about, actually, well, well, let's talk about backgrounds before we go. What's your background today? Um, it's an Air India 744 in, right. at Bombay Airport. Right, cool. And I've got uh, the Houston skyline um, taken uh, from there. It was actually a pretty cool day. I think this might've been the day that they had, um, uh, what's that thing that they have downtown with an odd car parade. So obviously it wasn't this year. <laughs> um, okay, so let's talk about the 737 MAX. What's going on with that plane? Well, this is sort of directly related to it, but it, this has to do with um, a US legislative uh, report on the whole debacle. Mm -hmm. And it was, I thought it was a very, I didn't read the whole thing, but I read some of it. It's a very well-written uh, outlook of what happened. And they certainly spared no one's feelings. And the, the most obvious targets were Boeing, yeah. its entire culture, and um, the US FAA, which is the Federal Aviation Administration. And they essentially blasted them. And they had four um, main areas where they had huge problems with the way these two um, agencies, these two companies slash agencies work. The first one was production pressures that jeopardized the safety of the flying public. Now, this is a well-known story that Boeing really didn't want to make the 737 MAX series. They were uh, wanting to build an all new airframe uh, to better challenge the Airbus uh, 320 family. Mm -hmm. But the engine manufacturers just didn't have the efficiencies that um, make a brand new airframe more viable. And uh, because Airbus had uh, started the, the NEO program with its uh, 
A320 family, actually, and the A330 aircraft, Boeing felt it uh, was forced to do this with the uh, NG aircraft of the 737 and make the MAX to extend its life even further. But anyway, um, they said the aircraft was rushed. It was not well thought out. Um, and that brought me to the second point of their uh, critique, which is faulty design and performance assumptions, specifically related to this software, the MCAS software that was installed on this aircraft. And they were going to let it go without informing any operators of the aircraft. They were not going to put it in the manuals, uh, but they were instead going to um, educate the pilots of this aircraft through a few art tutorial on an iPad. And um, the third one was a culture of concealment where engineers at Boeing knew about, had very serious misgivings about this aircraft and reported to their concerns to their supervisors, but they were dismissed as being insignificant or delaying the production schedule and um, budget. What was especially jarring was to hear that the chief engineer of Boeing had the decision to pass this aircraft without really understanding what was going on related to MCAS. And all the engineers who expressed all these misgivings were reporting to supervisors who were not reporting directly to the chief engineer. Hmm. It sounds hopelessly messed up, but um, that's what the committee concluded um, in its report. Okay, but, but Kusha, hold on a sec. This can't be a new problem. Like Boeing didn't just start building airplanes yesterday. Right. But remember, this was the first really rushed plane. Well, All yeah. their aircraft has have been um, produced on a schedule that has been predetermined by Boeing. So, so they tried something new and it didn't work. Correct. Right. Because they faced production pressures. They had time pressures as okay. well. Gotcha. Because Airbus was working on the NEO um, and Boeing <laughs> really didn't have a competitive product. Yeah, but they've always had something. So, like, the 767 was always competing against the 330. I mean, the 777 is always competing against what rem we... Remember, the 330 came after the 767. 767 came with the 757. And there was well, no real competitor to both of them. Yeah, until but, later, when the 330 came. Yeah, it just, it sounds like there's more to it than the report. There's always is, right? There's always more to yeah. it than the, report, than the report says. But, so, you know. uh, no, there's more, actually. There's, um, the fourth topic they addressed was conflicted representation. Right. Because there were four Boeing employees who were responsible for conveying all um, items of interest to the US FAA. And it turns out they did not. So the FAA was really ill-informed about all these issues. And I'll get to more of that in a bit. And then the, the, the last point that they wanted to make sure everyone knew was Boeing's undue influence on the oversight structure of the FAA. 
Hmm. So the FAA was essentially allowing Boeing to certify its own products, which just sounds inherently wrong and should be um, not at all permitted, but that's what happened. <laughs> but I would think so. That, hmm. Yeah. The one thing that um, was especially um, infuriating to this committee is that the FAA, um, after the first crash of this aircraft in Indonesia in 2018, the FAA did their own investigation and found that with this MCAS software in the state that it was, they could reasonably expect 15 more crashes with a loss of about 3,000 additional lives. Yet they went along and were willing to ignore the uh, current situation, but they said they were advising Boeing on uh, revising the software. And they didn't feel it worthy enough to ground this aircraft because they said they didn't have all the data they needed. Mm. First of all, is inexcusable. Yeah, there's more to it. There's more than that telling us. I, I mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and um, they also ignored Boeing's own disclosures that said that there was this um, indicator light in the cockpit that would tell pilots if, this, um, if one of the angle of attack sensors on the aircraft was malfunctioning. And it turns out that on 80% of the 737 MAXs in service, that indicator light, for whatever reason, was not, was not functional. Mm. So pilots had no idea that this uh, MCAS system was working behind the scenes. And since that indicator light was not connected, I would assume, they didn't know that there was something wrong. Mm. And then the third mm. item was that since there were two angle of attack sensors, why did the MCAS system rely only exclusively on one sensor when there were two? Because it was designed. That was a huge, <laughs> huge omission. But as you said, there's more than meets the eye yeah. in the yeah. report. Yeah. But um, Boeing's response was it acknowledged the deficiencies at, and that it had learned hard lessons, as they said. Oh, yeah. But still, what else are they going to say, right? It was probably a combination of utter mismanagement, cost, and most importantly, cost cutting. Yeah. I mean, contributed. And, and, and we know how it works in, in the corporate side of things. Um, the employees will tell you something is not going right, but you still do it anyway. Because the, yep. person, the person who who's given the direction is not the person to be tackled with. And if you go against the corporate grain, you are usually singled out and go give some other task that, that's, you know, that's below you uh, in the sense that you're overqualified to do that. And eventually you get reassigned to something else. So yeah. it's, it's just corporate, corporate culture at work. And, it, and, it, and Boeing is not the only company who has this problem. Lots of other companies have this problem. It's yes, just, I wish they would do this for the military side of Boeing as well. Because well, if you look at the KC-46, which is the 767 tanker, yeah. that thing is fraught with problems. Yeah, but they would never do that because you can't criticize that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, we, and we won't either. 
Yeah. <laughs> we will leave that but, alone. No, I thought this was commercial. very interesting. That um, this was the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee of the U.S. House of Representatives, yeah. and it was led by Committee Chairman Peter DeFazio, who's from Oregon. Okay. Now, given that Portland is a huge uh, facility for Boeing, I thought it was um, laudable that he would go ahead and blast Boeing for this, given that Boeing has such a heavy investment in Oregon. I mean, it shouldn't be a tit-for-tat thing, but uh, I think Boeing really needed to hear this, and I hope they've learned from this mistake. I hope so too. But he's rather mad because they've moved stuff this year to, um, to the Carolinas. <laughs> and to Chicago. Because yeah. you, you know my thing with Boeing is like, when they decided to move to Chicago, I was like, why? Why are you moving your headquarters out of the place where your manufacturing is to Chicago? I just don't get it. I still don't understand that. And I think, you know what, the money that they spent on moving stuff to Chicago, yeah. they should have just stayed in Seattle or in Everett and be done with it. But, it, it, you know, that's a whole other thing, right? Yeah. Um, so everything is it's just like in aviation where it's a series of unfortunate events, right? It's not just mm -hmm. one thing that caused those planes to crash. It's a whole right. series of things that cause them. Yep. Yeah. And cost so I, I, and. Just to remind your listeners that yesterday we had talked about Southwest and it's incorrect weights for the yeah. 738 and why the FAA was being so aggressive in going after them. I think this has to do with how badly they managed uh, their relationship with Boeing in basically allowing Boeing to dictate its own reviews. Well, yeah, but there's more to so, that again. That, that, didn't just, that didn't just happen. Um, right? it's, it's like... So in New York, um, on Long Island City, there's a building. It's the Citibank building. It's the tallest building that's there. Uh, maybe now they've built others because, um, because of that one. But it's the tallest building that's there. And when it was built, um, there was nothing out there. Everything else was like maybe a quarter the height. And it's like, how do you build a building that big without seeing it? Um, because the zoning law says you can't build that tall. But yes, so you had this big building sitting out there. And don't tell me that nobody saw it. So that's the kind of thing that happens, right? Is that you see these things occurring and you're like, well, how did you build that thing? How did nobody see it? And so it's the same thing in this. Um, you know, people, you just don't say anything because you know that you're going to get in trouble if you say something. So you just leave it alone. And then when something else happens like this, then everybody tries to clean up and everybody tries to blame the next person and it goes nuts. Um, that sounds you know, familiar. Yes. And hopefully they will get it together. And, you know, they've learned their lessons. I mean, Boeing is a great company. I mean, they provide airplanes all over the world. They keep the world connected. Look at the aircraft they produce, though. Yeah. I mean, I mean so, you know, the, the kind of stuff that they've done is pretty amazing. Um, and so, but, you know. Well, they can redeem themselves with the new 777s, X's. Well, let's hope. And hopefully with a smooth rollout of the the updated 73s max yeah it's everybody's so, trying to save money and they try to save money on the wrong things um, yep. which is always the, the thing in aviation um but you know uh, not only that. aviation yes and everything else all right so um more freighter news uh this one is atr they're flying its first um 
freighter. So, so the, the, is, is this the ATR-72 they're doing? Yeah. Oh, okay. And this is something I didn't realize, actually, till I yeah. saw this article in the um, World Airline News, okay. that FedEx had a, has actually ordered um, 30 firm and 20 options of this ATR-72-600. Okay. And it's the dedicated freighter. So it's not a passenger to freighter conversion. Because uh, apparently there are already uh, ATR-72s and 42s that have been passenger built, but converted to freighters. Uh, okay. But um, from what I learned is that during the conversion, it adds weight to the aircraft, about one ton of uh, weight to the aircraft because of the passenger um, capabilities already built into the plane. Yeah. In this case, it was since it was a new build plane, um, none of the passenger related um, additions were included. So they are able to accommodate um, seven um, industry standard pallets into this plane. Um, and they can do it mechanically because all previous versions of this ATR freighter had to be bulk loaded, hmm. which has to do with loading them manually. Yeah. Just like too, they do in the 737, yeah. for instance. Because it's, it's too small. Cargo. It's yes. too small. But it's low to the ground, so that makes it easier to load. Yes. So that's what this freighter um, is um, intended to replace. Okay. Because so they intend to use uh, these standard containers from the larger planes um, and move them directly onto these smaller planes for distribution to destinations within about 900 nautical miles of the airport, which is about uh, 1,700 kilometers. Okay. And then I also found out that below this in size range is this aircraft called the Cessna, Cessna Sky Courier, which is an update of the Cessna Caravan. Which I was FedEx just going to say, yeah. yeah. That's what they use in the Caribbean a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So, and apparently in, in Alaska as well. Yeah. Because yeah. it's a tough uh, little rugged. airplane. Yeah, they're rugged. Yes, very buttons. rugged. It's like <laughs> the Twin Otter. Yeah, they go everywhere. <laughs> So, and they don't need um, that much runway to take off, so that's good. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I just thought this was uh, interesting that um, FedEx was going to operate ATRs. And I didn't yeah. also know that um, ATRs currently um, have about one third of, their, of the, the cargo market for equivalent aircraft size. Okay, that makes sense. So, so, so yeah. is the door, door going to open sideways then? Well, actually, they have two doors. They have one extra large door right behind the cockpit. Right. And then an upward pivoting door behind the wings. Oh, okay. I was just thinking about two, that. Because, yeah. Okay. All right. Because that's where behind the, when you go into an ATR uh, on the right, uh, the, the door at the back on the right side is where your cargo go. And right. they can also put cargo up front behind the pilots. Yes. No, but there's another door be in. Yeah. I don't know if that cargo door is included in the freighter, but there's um, there's there's a large cargo door rear of the wings. Uh, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's yeah. which which because on passenger ATRs the cargo door is sort of a small one. It's a small one to the right of yeah. where, where you go into the plane. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's on the same side of where the passenger door is. 
yeah, yeah. it makes sense. Oh, speaking, so, of, speaking of same sides, um, <laughs> we need to look at, at why the doors are the way they are on planes. <laughs> like on the left side like why is everything on the left side yeah. and on the right side uh although there are some doors on the right side and there's some there's nothing on the left side they're so, never used though um yeah it's weird because even on like the 787-9s and 8s there, there is a cargo uh on the right side uh behind the um on the, under the tail just under the tail there and there's one on the other side yeah. so yeah it's that's a whole other thing we should talk about at some point <laughs> but but um, also, this plane was um, uh, actually this was this first flew on the seventeenth of September. So I would expect a couple of years, maybe a year or two of certification before it's delivered to FedEx. Yeah, oh, that's good. because um, so, clearly cargo is the thing now. Yep. <laughs> I mean, we've seen that. We've seen him even putting. Uh, you know, in, in the commercial plans, inside the planes, they were putting cargo yeah. when we first had the COVID thing, which had to get recertified. And I know that Air Canada actually took all the seats out of one of their 777s and packed uh, stuff inside. Um, so, so if you look on the internet, you'll find some of those videos. Um, all right, cool. Uh, I, so I saw this next story and somebody sent it to me. Uh, it was about how, how the bird, it was really long, so I'm glad you took a look at it. But it's something about how birds are influencing how we're going to fly, how aircraft is going to be flying. So yeah. what's all that? This was another uh, article that got a lot of uh, uh, coverage in the news. Yeah. And I got this one from CNN. Uh -huh. um, CNN Travel, but there are also a lot of other sites for coverage of this. Yeah, it's been so, all over the place. Um, I didn't really know that there was um, a division of Airbus called Airbus Up Next, which is a future flight demonstration and technology incubator. So they look and see uh, what is the future of flight and what can we do to lessen our uh, carbon footprint, for instance. Okay. And this was all based on a 2001 paper in a science journal called Nature that um, dealt with analyzing the flying patterns of um, geese, swans, and pelicans. Well, it turns out that these researchers had access to tame pelicans, and um, they actually fitted them with um, heart rate monitors. Oh, okay. And then... Um, <laughs> let them loose, I would imagine, and discovered that when they were flying, um, these pelicans had heart rates that were typically 14% lower than what the normal heart rate would be. Hmm. So they were clearly using some aerodynamic efficiencies by flying in the formations they did. And... Uh, this was the basis for the study by Airbus. Now, this is obviously something not that's inherent to a bird, especially a sea bird, but it's not exact. Easy to demonstrate this in practice without a lot of theoretical calculations. So they, Airbus started on this in 2016 with a 380 and a 350. 
Okay. And then in uh, March 2020, they updated it with two 350s. And what they found is that when this, these planes flew in formation, like birds, one of them had a marked decrease in um, fuel consumption. So what they did, they did was analyze the wingtip vortices of the leading plane. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm sure a lot of your listeners are going to know that um, whenever you land at a busy airport, you always keep a certain distance behind the plane in front of you, especially if it's a big one, yeah. like a 747, a 777, or especially a 380 because of these wake turbulences. So what happens is that when an aircraft flies through the sky, the wing tips distrib distribute air and disturb it. And they have these circular patterns that can sometimes flip smaller planes behind them. These and, and have flipped. Yes. So what Airbus decided to do was to try and use these vortices to um, increase the aerodynamic efficiencies of these aircraft following these planes. So because it works in a circular manner, the airflow around these wingtips, and there's a significant updraft. So there's air moving upwards. So what they have concluded would be a viable alternative in the not so distant future is to be to have commercial aircraft flying in formation. Now, this is not military formation like the Thunderbirds um, or the Blue Angels, you know, where the aircraft are wingtip to wingtip. Right. That, of course, would never happen. <laughs> but these are slightly askew. So they're about one and a half to two kilometers um, to three kilometers apart. But um, they are flying in a formation of that sort. It takes, of course, a lot of um, science and calculations to figure out what is the best spot for the aircraft to be positioned. So all that has yet to be worked out. And also um, whether different airlines would be willing to participate. And I so know. far they have uh, French B and SAS that are joining the program next year, as well as... Um, air traffic control from France, UK, and the rest of Europe. Yeah, because that'll be interesting. So, right. So they're going to have to develop um, manuals and um, different in-flight procedures of how to guide the pilot into the right position behind the lead aircraft. Um, and also they're going to have to coordinate with government agencies to allow these planes to fly so close to one another. Mm -hmm. at the same altitude mm -hmm. and um, um, also coordinate with flight schedules. Yes. Because yeah, the way they envision it is that there would be, let's say from flights to Europe to the US, there would be a point over the North Atlantic at which these different planes would meet and then fly in formation across the Atlantic over to wherever. Yeah, because that, that's the place US that in Canada. Be. It would make a lot of sense, yes. the Trans-Pacific and Trans-Atlantic. Correct. Yeah. So um, 
So yeah, this was again, I thought, a very, very unique um, yeah, no, that's good. That's way good. to consider fuel efficiencies because I believe it's going to be extremely challenging for engine manufacturers to bring additional fuel efficiencies out of their already efficient engines. Yeah, yeah. Unless we, unless we just they, we figure out a different way to do propulsion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So. Uh, all right, cool. I'm glad you explained that to me because I saw it and I'm like, oh, it's just birds flying. And then I saw the V shapes. I'm like, oh, yeah, they do fly weird like that. Okay, that makes so, sense. Yeah. <laughs> and also, they have to figure out how they're going to share the fuel efficiencies with all the different airlines. That's right. Because remember that right. the yeah. aircraft right in front doesn't experience any of these uh, fuel efficiencies. In the way. And it's the one creating it. Yeah. Well, it's just like uh, I was watching the, the Tour de France and you see that in the Tour de France, right? Where the guys, yeah, they just exactly. go behind one person and pick up the wind from yep. that. So, yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, oh. that's quite interesting. Which, by the way, just ended. And um, it was amazing to see Paris like that. There's like nobody. But I think what they did for most of the area, they blocked people off. Like you saw uh, the Arc de Triomphe. Huh. And the only thing around it was just the riders. It's because mm -hmm. they, have, they have blocked people off, like a block away. So it was very weird to see that and the Champs-Élysées and um, uh, what you call the other one, uh, the Louvre, with like nothing around it. But the city is amazing and beautiful. And um, I, I, we're going to miss it next year because next year is, well, hopefully, is the, um, what you call that thing again? The Paris Air Show again. Okay. Uh, well, just to um follow up on this yeah this program is called fellow fly i don't know how they came up with that and it's essentially wake energy retrieval which uh, is exactly what it hopes yeah. to accomplish well good hopefully the airlines will, will, will cooperate you know maybe maybe it's one that will you know the airline that leads get gets a percentage of the number of people that it's leading whatever they make so if they make five percent then they give the airline that's leading they're going to have to work that out. Something like that, yeah. Because it also depends on what type of leading airliner it yeah. is. But remember, the airlines, the airlines already share money. I mean, everything goes to the clear right. So this would be easy. So. <laughs> ah, good deal. All right, we have one more story, and we're trying to keep to our half an hour. We're probably just about there. Are we there. doing? Uh, we're just okay. about there. Uh, maybe a little over, but that's fine. Um, so... We don't talk much about airports, but we have been talking about this one forever. And this one has been around forever. And finally, I even saw something that says, it's like, I don't know, Air France is going to be the last one to leave. But, but go ahead, Krisha. What's going on with the Berlin? This is Berlin. The Brandenburg. Berlin, Brandenburg, B-E-R. Yes. What's going this on? This was an airport that started construction in 2006, set to open in 2011. Right. And because of a series of bungled attempts and bad engineering, which is very uncharacteristic. Very. It finally, finally is going to open in a few weeks. Good. And uh, what I thought was interesting is how, the, how Germany has coordinated all this. Because remember, there are three airports at play for one city. There's Berlin Tegel which is currently the main airport for mm -hmm. Berlin. There's Berlin Schonefeld, which is um, essentially on the same property as the new Berlin Brandenburg. Across the runway. Right. 
Um, and uh, there's, of course, the new Berlin airport, which is the BER code. Now, remember that Berlin, Brandenburg, which is Willy Brandt Airport, International Airport, is the new BER. It's just south of Schoenefeld. So they currently share the same runway, uh -huh. runways rather. Right. So what they're going to do is close down Tegel on November the 8th of 2020. But on October 25th, they are going to rename Schoenefeld, which is SXF, to Berlin Terminal 5. Okay. So that's going to be on October 25th. And then on October 31st, Berlin Terminal 1, which is the new Brandenburg, uh, Willy Brandt International, is going to open. So you could have a passenger who takes off from SXF, Schoenefeld, and lands at BER, Berlin Brandenburg, Willy Brandt. When they return. But they would be taking off and landing at the same location when they return i can see yes when they return okay so i can see it causing quite a bit of confusion but i'm sure they're going to figure this out yeah because currently if you type in ber for um uh, on different search engines travel search engines in germany you get all three airports correct because right. that's that is the, that is the airport i mean the city code right yeah. So uh, um, working that out is going to be a little bit. It uh, shouldn't be too bad. I'm, I'm, I'm confused because there's a gap there. Yes, there is. So, so there's like a month gap. So take a close. No, it's a few weeks. It's a few okay. weeks. So the first thing is um, October 25th, Schoenefeld is going to be renamed Berlin T5. B-E-R-T-5. Right, October twenty fifth. But even but even that you you said that Tigo was going to be closed when right November eighth. So November Tigo is closed weeks later. Okay, so that's okay, so October twenty fifth. Schoenefeld becomes T five B E R T five. October thirty first. Right. B E R operates uh, as Berlin Brandenburg. And uh, November 8th is when Tegel finally closes. Oh, so there'll be an overlap. Okay. So yes, just, there's an overlap. Yeah. W which is kind of weird. They, they should have just done like how um, Hong Kong had done it, cut over. Yeah. yeah. But they're actually going to fly um, aircraft from Tegel to uh, the new yeah. Berlin airport. Yeah, which, 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 which makes sense. Well, yeah. you, you, know, you know that closed Lenate, right? They've closed. They had no. Closed. They haven't closed it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They closed. They they closed Lenate because it needed. You mean Milan? Yeah, in Milan. Yeah, because it needed some runway fixing. And so. Oh, were, the, yeah, but it's yeah. not closed permanently. No, no, no. It's open again. It should yeah. be open again because um they 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 fixed whatever they were fixing the runway or something like that. So the yeah. airport Is had that to be closed. Huh? Alitalia hub. I mean, yeah. Malpensa was a afterthought. Not exactly yeah. afterthought, well, but. But Lenate is really tiny. Have you flown into so, Lenate? So no. that's, that's the kind of stuff. Um, they should... But yeah, this is a little bit confusing, but it's it, nine it years later confusing. that yeah. uh, Brandenburg is open. But I think all of Germany, especially the government, will breathe a huge sigh of relief. It's a big deal. Once it's open. Yes, it's a huge deal. Um, 
All right, cool. So we're going to keep you posted once, once all that goes on. And yes. Hopefully we'll get a chance to, um, to go check it out at some point. Um, all right. Is that it? I think that's it. Yep. All right. Yep. Perfect. We're, we're doing well with time. Um, all right. So that is the end of episode 35. Is that what it was? Which is probably our shortest episode we've ever did, we've ever done. <laughs> but we really should try and keep to a 45 minute uh, yeah, time but, frame. But I feel rushed. I feel like we were, you know, granted, I actually have a meeting in four minutes, but I still feel, I still feel like we rushed this episode. So you guys tell us what you think. Um, uh, you know, do you want a short episode? Do you want a longer episode? Do you want us just to talk until we're tired? Uh, let us know. And, uh, and remember, we are now on Amazon podcast. So just search, search for what's happening in travel. And then you, uh, you'll be able to find us. And if you have a podcast player, just search for what's happening in travel. And that podcast player will actually find it. And then you can add it to your play and you can subscribe. And then you can get all the updates whenever we broadcast a new episode. So that's all we have today uh, from my buddy. For sure and Kerwin on um, the latest episodes of What's Happening in Travel. See you guys the next time.